1 Kings chapter 5, a very strange passage uh, to, to try to preach. Uh, I looked at it several ways over the last week, and I just uh, I came up with this weird way of doing it that's probably going to be misunderstood by some people, and I thought, well, let's challenge it anyway. Um, but there's just so much stuff and material in that chapter, and it's, a lot of it is, quite frankly, sorry, Lord, boring. Uh, all the detail of what material and what you do with it. Now, we've been here before. We'll, mention, we'll talk about that here in a little bit, but it's just the building of the temple. And a lot of you are HGTV people. Do you like that love it or list it? And uh, I don't know, what, whatever those shows are where you see they, they come into your house and they remodel it or whatever, and you get really enamored with that. But can I tell you, that that's a lot of, that's a lot of showbiz. You know why I know that? I've seen a lot of construction workers, and none of them look like those people. Because usually they're short, their pants are wet, you know what I mean, right? And, and, and they don't look anything like the HGTV hosts or whatever. And if you really had a show that was like how carpenters do it, it would be boring. You'd watch these guys measure twice and cut once. You ever heard that? How many have heard that? You measure twice, you cut? Yeah, and they would teach that, and it would be like, let's pick this out. Now we've got to do this. Now look at it again. Nobody would watch that show, and so they got to they kind of you know, glamorize it with HGTV. This is the unabridged version of the Carpenter's Channel. This is how Hiram gets the logs down to, Israel, or to Jerusalem and they start building and they put this here and this there. And it's just, oh, oh, yada, yada, yada stuff. And I was sitting there going, how do you deal with this without, well, I read this to my church camp kids to get them to sleep at night. What do I do that? How do I do that on a Sunday night crowd and not expect them to go to sleep, right? But here's the real challenge. As these people are excited about building the structure for God, I know what's going to happen to it. I know what it's going to do to the people. We almost get to have a perspective like God. As God watches them build it, He knows what this is going to do to the people. And it's not good. The temple messed the people up. Now, they thought they were doing a great thing, right? They thought they were, and they intended it, right? It's sort of like the kings. You remember the kings? Did God plan to put the kings in there? Nope. We want a king. Okay, it's going to mess you up, but if you want it, I'll let you have it. And he gives them the kings, and what to do? It messes them up. And so here they are coming up with this idea. Keep this in mind as we go through this. Just ask this question, whose idea was it to build a temple? Whose idea was it? David's, right? You remember when David in 2 Samuel 7 decided, hey, God, you know, I'm, I'm living in my house. I need to build you one. And I think the only reason he got that idea is every other religion around me has a big old house for their God. You got those people over there, you got these people over there that think the world of their God, and they build them this great, and then they put their statues, the pictures or images of their God right there. It's their house. They build them a house. And our God is the one true living God of the universe. We need to build a house for our God. God never asked for a temple. Never. David came up with the idea after, as he looked around at other people. And do you remember why God told him he couldn't be the one to, to build it? You remember? 
because he was a man of bloodshed. Second, Samuel, Second Chronicles, right? Same night, the word of the Lord. This is, this is what God says to him. And I love this response, and listen to this. When, when David says, I got this wonderful idea. I'm so, I'm so uh, appreciative, God, of everything you've done. Here's what I want to do. Uh, that night, when he, when he told uh, Nathan that he wanted to do this, God came to Nathan. Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? You think you can build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought the people up out of Egypt. From that day to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Next screen. In all the places where I've moved with the people of Israel, did I ever say to the judges who I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I've never asked you for one. And I think David, God is saying, I've never asked because I know what it's going to do to you. While, while the temple idea communicates something, more often than not, it, it miscommunicates things. In this particular passage, 1 Kings chapter 5, and I didn't put this on the screen because I want you to have it in front of you. You know David my father, verse 3, talking to Hiram, could not build a house for my name, but the name of, of his God, because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him, until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord has given me the right to build this temple. God never asked for it. Stephen, years later, in Acts chapter 7, says this, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it. I want you to remember that, as he directed him to make that tabernacle. According to the pattern he had seen, we're going to talk about that in a minute, our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. Next screen. But it was Solomon who built the house for him, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses. The very idea of building a temple communicates something wrong. He does not dwell in a pen. The entire globe is his home and the cosmos beyond. The prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says Lord? What kind of place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? The very idea of building a temple is a wrong idea. It communicates too many things. And so we're going to look, just, uh, just for a second, as start, the excitement's starting to build. We'll get back to Solomon here in a minute. As he's just so excited and giddy about the possibility of building God this magnificent temple, we're going to look at how it miscommunicates. Number one, it says God is stationary. God's located in one spot. Now, you might say, well, that's not necessarily true. You're right, it's not necessarily true, but that's how people start to view it. The funniest story of all, right here in 1 Kings chapter 20, if you'll just move ahead to chapter 20, because since we're so close, I'm not going to put it on the screen. In the spring, Ben-Hadad, this is 1 Kings 20, verse 26, mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the people of Israel were mustered 
<laughs> they weren't catching up. They were mustered. Anyway, so, and they were provisioned, and they went against them, and the people of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats. But the Syrians filled the country. The Syrians way outnumbered them. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, here's what the Lord has to say about this. Because the Syrians have said, God has overheard the Syrians talking, the Lord is a God of the hills. He's not a God of the valleys. So I want to show this great multitude. Put them in your hand. You'll know that I am the Lord. I'm the Lord of the hills and the valleys. I'm not isolated to one spot. It's not like I'm in Israel, but I can't be in Nineveh. I'm in Israel, and I can't be over here. But the temple gives you the idea that God has to kind of stay here. Now, what do you do, what do you call it, when you have an animal that's made for nature, and you put him in an isolated place? You call it either a zoo or a pen. And that's what they're doing with God with the temple. It's, it's, it's making God look like he's stationary. Our God is not stationary. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And a temple miscommunicates it. Valley View Church of Christ is not a building on a hill, is it? It's a body of people that once in a while goes up on top of the hill on a nice building we're trying to pay off. This is not Valley View Church of Christ. You are Valley View Church of Christ. And the God that we serve is not up here on the hill. He's down in the valley where we view. Valley View, right? He's, he's everywhere. And so he's not stationary. Secondly, it's, um, it's the idea that God needs us to build him a place to live in. When Paul wants to attack the pagan religion, this is his first order of business. Listen to him in Acts chapter 17 when he's criticizing the pagan religions, the God who made the earth, the God I'm telling you about, the one you have the, to an unknown God, I want to tell you about that God. He's a God who made the world in like three seconds, let there be, right? He made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in temples made by man. He don't need your hands to build a house. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needs something from you. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And if a temple gets you to think, I need to build God a house, you're automatically in the wrong theology in your head. God doesn't need us. We need him and he's everywhere. Third, God is our good luck charm. He's kind of... He belongs to us, and he endorses us. And we can get a little cocky with this. We can become to think we are the people of God, and, and we come together and we worship God, so we have God's endorsement and approval in our lives. And the, and the temple is kind of the focus for that. That's the famous Jeremiah sermon. Here's Jeremiah chapter 7. Here's God coming to the people of Israel. He was very frustrated with them. And uh, we'll talk about what he's about to do later. But thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. You've got to change if I'm going to let you live here in Jerusalem and in the temple. I've got to see behavior change. 
Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. As long as I've got the temple in my town, nothing can happen to my town. As long as I've got the temple in the town, I can live any way I want to. But as long as I come on Saturday to the temple, it endorses everything. Now, he keeps on going. If you truly amend your ways and your deeds, and if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place. This place, I'm giving you an allowance to live here. And you need to live a kind of life that honors this temple. Is there another screen? Is that it? I think that's it. This is called the Temple Sermon of Jeremiah. You think that just because the temple's downtown and you come visit it, you frequent it once a week. He's talking to the Jews now, but tell me that doesn't translate 2,000 years, 3,000, 4,000 years later. You think... Church attendance fixes everything. You think that's all there is to it as long as you're counting that number on the board back there? You think coming to the church is all it takes? Is that really the evaluation of your depth of spiritual devotion? Because the things he mentions are pretty much 24-hour-a-day attitudes, right? But sometimes that temple made them think of a good luck charm. Here's the last one. I'd say about this is God's only interested in formal worship. This is an easy thing, a real problem. Because the thing that you do in the temple is that you worship. That's what you primarily do in a temple. You come to this building and you worship God in it. So God later says to the people, here's Amos chapter 5. Now listen, this is important. I, I hate, I despise your feasts. What feasts? The ones God commanded them to observe. Now hold it. He commanded them to have the feasts, and then they have the feast, and God hates it. What in the world? I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Don't forsake the assembly, but if you come to the assembly, you make me want to puke. That's weird. What is he talking about? You offer me your burnt offerings. You offer me your grain offerings. You take your offering. You observe the Lord's Supper. You do the five acts just right. I'm not accepting them. What? Is that how he told us to do? Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Did we not do that? Did we not do the bread first? And then we do the fruit of the vine second? And did we not sing? And did we not do this one? And did we not pray? Sure, we prayed, right? And I know we did the giving prayer. I know we didn't pass the trays anymore. But we, I know we did. Yeah, it's all right. It's just that it's all wrong. I can't even stand to look at him. Now continue. Take away from me the noisier songs. Ooh, we enjoyed the singing, but God didn't. What? The melody of your harps, I will not listen. No problem, we don't even have them. But <laughs> or pianos, we've we taken it all. Let justice roll down like waters, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. If this isn't a continuous expression of devotion you brought with you in here, you take with you out of here, that you live like outside of here, then what you do here is not enough to fix that. So what you do in here actually becomes worse judgment for you. He's saying this, I'm not 
primarily interested in your worship unless it's reflecting obedience. He says that all the time. And in fact, is this where I put Micah? Yeah. I, I want you to really, I mean, I've never, I've never really noticed this before, but the people were so tired of the prophets telling them that they weren't living right. And the people were just sick of the sermons about, you know, you need to change this, you need to do that, and we've got to look back at the law, we need to live this way. And so finally, God says, well, here, I'm going to do, I'm going to represent your position. These, these are the words the people are saying to God. What shall I bring with me when I come before the Lord? When I bow before God, what does he want? You want me to bring burnt offerings? Calves a year old? This is a worship thing. You want me to bring this to worship? Is the Lord going to be pleased if I bring a thousand rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Is that going to satisfy him? We can't seem to satisfy this God at all. We keep coming and we keep coming and we do what he asks and he's still not satisfied with us. And it's all worship stuff. This has nothing to do with your life. It has to do with that one hour of worship on Saturday. And they're all consumed about what does God want in that one hour? How about my firstborn son, God? How about that? What if I bring my kid and burn him? Will you be satisfied then? Is that what you, what does God really want? He wants you to quit messing with this one hour and look at the other 23. He's told you, man, what's good? What's the Lord wanting? You to do right. To love kindness. To walk humbly with God. On Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Then come into the assembly on Sunday and bring your worship. But if if you're living any way you want to the other seven, six days, and then come in here, he ain't listening. The temple makes us think that all he's concerned about is this. Now, in this passage that we're dealing with, I want you to look at 1 Kings chapter 6. As David does, uh, Solomon does all this amazing building and this flurry of activity, only once in these five chapters, these three chapters we're dealing with, only once does God ever speak, so it's pretty important. God holds a press conference. All the microphones are standing in front of him, ABC and CBS and Fox and Fox News, and all these people are, okay, what is God saying about this? He must be excited that we're building him a house. And here's what God, no, now just listen to this first line, chapter 6, verse 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Finally, God speaks. In all this activity, everybody's wanting to do something for God, and God finally says something. Concerning this house that you're building, stop right there. Concerning this house that you're building, Oh, he's going to address the temple. He's about to say something about the construction, the quality materials, the busyness. He doesn't say one word about the temple at all. <laughs> it's crazy. Doesn't say one word concerning this building. Chapter 6, verse 11. Concerning, verse 12 now, concerning this house that you're building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules, keep all com my commandments and walk in them, 
Then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Not one word about construction or the temple. It's all about the behavior of the people who gather in the temple. It's amazing, isn't it? He doesn't care. The temple is no big deal. It's the people. Now, if you remember when God told David this, when David said, I want to build something for you, God says, no, you're not going to build it. I'm going to build you a house. That's the word he uses. David says, I'm going to build you a house. And God says, no, you're not. I'll let Solomon do that. I'm going to build you, David, a house, and it's going to last for generations. And somebody's going to sit on the throne of that house. And what he means is a lineage, a family. God doesn't care if you have a house for him. He wants to be the father of the family. He's not concerned about the construction of the building. He's, he's concerned about the construction of the lives of the people who are his children. How we actually structure our lives is what he's concerned about. He wants your every moment. And the temple miscommunicates that. It's the same thing about the image. Every other, every other god had their house and they had an image of the god set there. You may remember Dagon back in the book of Judges. doing. Every one of them had this. And God says, I don't want images. You remember this? Commandment number two. I don't want images. Do you know why he doesn't want images? He's got them already. It's you. God's got his image all over the earth. People who live like him and look like him and honor him in their lives. That's an image of God. And he's got them all over. He doesn't need some kind of rock structure. And he doesn't need some kind of temple either. I'm not saying they're disobedient when they built the temple. I'm not saying they didn't have God's blessing because they did. I'm saying it was not God's idea. This is also communicated in other ways. I'm going to do some question and answer here real quick. You got God's comments at the press conference. Did God ever say the dimensions or the materials to build the temple out of? Never. He didn't say one word. But do you remember the tabernacle? Do you remember some of the most boring parts of all of Scripture in the book of Exodus? where Moses is on the mountain and God shows him the pattern of exactly how he wants the tabernacle built so that God can dwell among the people. And it's meticulous chapters of details. I want this here and this color and this material and this is placed here. It's got to be just right. And then when he built it, he set it all over again. Another four chapters of complete drudgery. God is being completely specific exactly how I want. But when it comes to the temple, God says not a word. It's like, I don't care crazy and then when Solomon in chapter 6 and 7 builds his own palace it takes twice as long and twice as much material to build his amazing monument and then he makes a room especially for his wife the daughter of Pharaoh the Egyptian woman Already the king is feeling like I have a right to something even more and I have a right to marriages that are, that are going to split my... Right there are the seeds already of disobedience right there in Solomon. And how did they pay for it? Do you remember how they paid for the tabernacle? Anybody remember that? All free will offerings. You remember that? Hey, y'all, hey, would you please give? And they gave in abundance. They had way too much. The people paid free will offerings. How did they pay for the temple? Forced labor and taxation. 
Who built the tabernacle? One Israelite man filled with the Spirit of God built the tabernacle. Who built the temple? A guy named Hiram. What do you do when you, fire, when you, when you meet a guy named Hiram? You hire him. <laughs> they hired him, and he's kind of a foreigner. He's from Tyre. He's got some Israelite blood in him, but he's a foreigner building a temple for God. It, there's just so much in here that makes me go, you know, I wonder what God was thinking about this. And he also, and he also knew what was going to happen in that temple. It didn't take very long either. We have the same issue today, right? And the interesting thing is the temple became such an obstacle that the only thing God could do to fix it was to what? Destroy it. Now listen, God said nothing about its construction, but God commanded its destruction. He charged the Babylonians to destroy that thing. He just could not get his people's attention with that temple and that idea and the miscommunication of it. And he led the Babylonians to destroy it. And then when they came back and they built it, they did it again. And then Jesus comes back and Jesus comes on the scene and he says, you're going to build, you're going to destroy this temple. What was he talking about? I'm replacing the temple. I am replacing it with me. And later on, the Romans come along. And while we don't have scripture to prove it, I'm telling you, God commanded the Romans to get rid of that thing. Jesus became the replacement of the temple. We have this issue today. We're still rooted to our buildings. I mean, we joke that we should never lie at church. I just heard that this morning in the foyer. Now, I know we're joking about that. But there's a bit of truth to that. Don't lie at church. But now if you're at home or you're driving in your car, you're going to lie like crazy, right? And sometimes we think that God is primarily concerned about the hour or two of worship and church fights that have arisen because of the one hour of worship and how it's conducted. I'm not saying it's not important. I just wonder if with all the instruction of the New Testament about worship, which is relatively little, there's an awful lot about your life. And we sometimes kind of ignore that. And then how much of our Christian life are we gauging and we monitor how we feel about our lives by how much church attendance in this building we offer? Are we sure to be seen in the building? Does that become a detriment to our Christian lives? Here's the truth about the temple. God wants to live in your life. And he couldn't get that through to people when there was a temple in their town. And so he brings Jesus on the scene, and Jesus becomes our temple. And through him and his Holy Spirit that he left behind, we become the temple. God says, I want to live in your life, not in that building on top of the hill. And so he moves in through his Holy Spirit. And your body is the only thing you have with you all the time. You cannot not be in your body. What Melissa says to me is, 
If your head wasn't connected to your body, you would forget it because I forget keys, I forget books, I forget stuff all the time. But you know what? You cannot leave your body behind. And that's what God chose to move into, to illustrate and get through your head. I want every moment to be mine. No part of you and your life that you live without God being with you. And what more can he do to communicate that than moving in? He's interested in everything. And he wants you to communicate to the world who he is everywhere you go. You are representing him when you are in the self-service line at Walmart. His temple is in Walmart. His temple is on the roads all the time. His temple is at school when you're a teacher. His temple is everywhere people are, and they see and they learn something about God by who, through his temple, which is you, everywhere you go. So he doesn't need images. They don't convey right, right? He doesn't want a home to live in because he's got one. And what's interesting about this one is that it takes in all tribes and languages and colors of people I don't know that we could accomplish that, but God can because he moves in. So let's do come to this building for worship. It's, it's a convenient place. It's important to worship, and it's good. But don't ever fall for the idea that this is the only place where God is. Right now, it's our young people gather at the Hawkins house. In that time of worship, no matter how short, it becomes a temple. And I hope they know that. But I also hope you know you were a temple before you got here. And you'll be a temple when you leave here. All day long, all week, everywhere you go. I want to add something here for no extra cost, although it's going to cost you some time. And I wish the young people were here because this is one song that's very, famous, very popular with young people and it drives us all crazy. Um, the Days of Elijah... All right, so this song comes along, and I know they like the, yeah, whoa, geez, and all this stuff. And, I, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. Let's, I don't want to do it here, but I want to say to young people, they, they're really confused. When they go to youth rallies, they do that weird stuff, and I love seeing them do it, the energy. When you come in here, they don't, and they feel like this is a different law at work. It's both worship. It's just different here because we have different people, and there's a reverence that needs to be maintained. When you're in a youth function, I think that, still counts but it's loosened some they can enjoy that and have fun with this song but the the thing about this song that's so interesting is 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 that the, it's saying these are the days of elijah and they use old testament figures old testament people stories that you know but all these old testament people they pick are part of a prophecy in the old testament that's to be fulfilled in our time so when you read Days of Elijah, he's not referring to the Elijah guy in the Old Testament. He's referring to the Elijah fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy in the New Testament. John the Baptist and Jesus, and by extension, it becomes us in the last days. These are the days of Elijah declaring the word of the Lord. And, and, and we know that we can do that. We are all prophets now. We are all prophets and prophet, uh, pro prophetesses, according to Acts chapter 2, by the Holy Spirit. These are the days of Moses, righteousness being restored. And Moses told us, there's another prophet like me coming 
who knows God face to face and bring you into greater righteousness. Who was that? Jesus. And he, through the Holy Spirit in us, he is helping us to restore righteousness in ourselves and in the world. And so these are the days that those fulfillments are coming. These are days of great trials. That's true. There are, and there will be as long as the last days go. These are the days where we are the voice in the desert. We are to fulfill like Jeremiah. We are to prepare the way for people to the Lord. That's all our jobs. That's true. These are the days of Ezekiel, the dry bones becoming his flesh. The days when that old Israel that failed is restored, right, through the Holy Spirit. That's what Ezekiel says in chapter 11 and chapter 16 and chapter 36. These are the days of David rebuilding a temple of praise. These are the days of the harvest. Now, that line about David is really strange, isn't it? Anybody have a problem with that line? What are you thinking? David didn't build it, right? Well, there's two things about this. For one thing, he's not... He's not rebuilding the temple. He's rebuilding the temple and its function for praise. What, who wrote all the songs of Israel that were used in the tabernacle and in the temple? David did. We got a new David who is filling the temple with praise. That's Jesus able to do that in us. But there's another thing about this. Every one of these names is associated with an end-time prophecy. Elijah has to come, Malachi chapter 4. Ezekiel has his prophecy. Moses has his prophecy. There's not a single prophecy about Solomon at all. Nothing. But there is this prophecy about David. Look at Amos chapter 9 on the screen. In that day, this is the restored Israel, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. That word booth is really tabernacle. That's all that David knew. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that's fallen and repair its breaches, raise up its ruins, rebuild it as in the days of old. Maybe if they said rebuilding the tabernacle of praise, that would make you feel better. But in the New Testament, they just don't use that language. They use temple, including Jesus himself. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming. This is... Behold, he comes. That's what he's talking about. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake uh, the, the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, and the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow into it. And finally, finally the truth will be known by all people. In those days, praise for God will be restored in its fullness through Jesus. What days are those? These are the days. We are the temple. This promise about David rebuilding the booth of praise is us. Now, lest you don't think so, lest you think I'm making this up, in Acts chapter 15, there's this quandary. What are we going to do with these Gentiles? And all the assembly fell silent know what to do. Peter had spoken. The Gentiles are allowed in. He tells his story. 
Paul and Barnabas tell their stories about what God's doing on the mission field. They fell silent. They just didn't know what to do. The apostles don't solve this. This is amazing. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. James, who's that? He's the brother of Jesus, the main elder at Jerusalem. And he stands up and he says, Brothers, listen. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles. There's exhibit one. To take them from a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written, wait for it, wait for it. After this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, I will restore it. This is Amos. This is now. This is David rebuilding a temple of praise through Jesus. This is the fulfillment of the last days. This is us. We are in the days of Elijah and Moses, the fulfillment of the prophecies associated with them for the new covenant. These are the days of David, or really, the son of David, rebuilding the temple of praise urging through us we're urging all people of the earth all languages tribes not in one building but in one body it's true these are those days and we are that temple and now we're going to sing that song and if you want to respond in some way do so as we stand and as we sing